We all know the world of energy and natural resources is changing fast. People are demanding action on the climate crisis. Businesses and politicians are throwing their weight behind the energy transition. And technology is reshaping the world as we know it. But we must ensure the result doesn't become too complex and too confusing. That's where the Climate Transition Podcast comes in. In this series, DLA Piper's Energy and Natural Resources team speaks to special guests to help you make sense of it all. My name is Natasha Luther-Jones. I'm the global co-chair of the Energy and Natural Resources sector here at DLA Piper. I'm also co-head of our International Sustainability and ESG offering. And I am your host for the series. Today we ask, what will it take to decarbonise heat? Countries around the world are committing to net zero, and even more so following the recent COP26. So far, a lot of progress has focused using wind and solar to make electricity grids greener. Electric vehicles are going mainstream too, so that's all great to see. But much more needs to be done. Electricity only accounts for around one-fifth of global energy use. There are still huge parts of the energy system that have been largely untouched by decarbonisation. One of these is heating. In the UK, heating in buildings accounts for 23% of carbon emissions. That rises to over 40% when you include industrial processes. This is a huge decarbonisation challenge. However, progress to decarbonise heating is still painfully slow. So how can we change that and what needs to be done? Today, we've changed the format of the podcast slightly and we're getting two for the price of one. I'm really pleased and very excited to have um, the renewable energy investor Greencoat Capital with us. We have Richard Norse, who is the founding partner of Greencoat Capital, and James Samworth, who co-manages the company's bioenergy division. Richard founded Greencoat in 2009 and led the company into renewables in 2013. It now manages assets worth $7 billion in sectors including wind, solar, bioenergy and much more across the UK, Europe and the US now. He started his career in finance in 1986 and has focused on energy since 2001. And as if Richard's not enough for the podcast, we also have James. James has been investing in bioenergy since 2009, and he joined Greencoat in 2019. He co-heads the company's bioenergy heat division and is the company's resident expert in industrial scale green heat. He is currently involved in one of the world's greenest and most advanced greenhouses, which I'm looking forward to hearing more about in our podcast. I've had the pleasure of working um, with Greencoat at DLA Piper now since 2013, so know these guys well. I'm absolutely sure this is going to be a fascinating discussion. So, Richard, let's start with you. Could you give us a quick intro to yourself and Greencoat? Uh, My Twitter handle, only a small number of followers relative to James's, um, says that I'm a recovering banker, type one father and husband to a cattle farmer. Um, I'm not sure else I should say very much more than that. Perhaps add that I led the energy and power team at Merrill Lynch until 2007. I then worked briefly for the government helping in the sale of British energy to um, to the, the EDF group. And so I therefore spent quite a lot of time thinking about nuclear as well as renewables since I started Green Code in 2009. 
And I have to say, actually, a bit of a plug for Richard on Twitter. I follow you on Twitter and, and you do amuse me with your posts. But anyway, back to decarbonizing heat. Um, so it, can you explain a little bit more to our listeners? Why do you think there's a need to decarbonize heat? So I think the answer to your question is really in what you said earlier around the, the concept that we've really made huge progress towards decarbonizing the production of electrons. I have no concerns at all that as a world seeking energy, we're going to be able to use um, natural resources like wind and solar to deliver really as many green electrons as we need um, in whatever quantity we want, and that that will be in an affordable way. And I guess the difference between that and heat is, is that we all know that heat is now a large part of the remaining um, carbon emissions from most countries, whether it be heat in the northern hemisphere and or whether it be cooling in hotter countries. Um, but we don't have any real ideas as to how we're going to decarbonize heating. I think we probably think that cooling is easier um, on the basis that solar and the, 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 the heat coincide roughly with each other, solar peak. But on heating, I think we're very stuck up in the northwest Europe and also in the US uh, in terms of how we will affordably be able to decarbonize heat. Thank you for that. I'm looking forward um, to getting into the detail about that later, but let's um, just turn to James as well, first of all. So, James, um, you are a relatively new joiner for Greencoat. Why did you join Greencoat? What attracted you to Greencoat? Um, well, other obviously than, than Richard's Twitter following. Um, <laughs> I think it was a really attractive opportunity uh, for, for me and uh, our team to, to, to join and, and create a, a new division for Greencoat Investing in, in Bioenergy and Heat at you know what we thought from the outside and, and uh, hopefully have uh, seen on the inside is, is really Europe's leading renewables investor. So, look, thank you both for joining. Um, and let's let's do get into some of the detail around the specific projects you're doing. But if we could start off on a more macro level. So I spent five days at COP26 earlier this month uh, because DLA Piper was the official legal partner for COP26. It's clear that actually decarbonizing many sectors is, is quite difficult when it comes to heat, including agriculture. Um, so maybe, Richard, first of all, I can ask you a sort of more high-level question. Um, why have we had such slow progress in decarbonizing heat? Is it policy technology what are the reasons so 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 i think um a little of everything is the truth so so so, so clearly the, the the big stumbling block is it would be a big mistake to race forward seeking to decarbonize buildings at a socially unacceptable cost and we absolutely need to make sure that the um, cost that we add on to the current cost of how we do it, i.e. heating using gas, is, um, is acceptable for society. And then the costs, if there are any increased costs, are justly spread across the different um, stakeholders in society. And I, I think it's really probably that issue in that the difference between heating your house using a gas, which has historically come from the North Sea, obviously now comes on a barge from somewhere else, uh, and putting it through an existing infrastructure network to what the what potential options are is quite a big step. And at the moment, the cost of that looks quite significant for pretty much any one of the options that we have available to us. And I guess, therefore, we, in some ways through the Renewable Heat Incentive, uh, I think we hoped that we'd be able to investigate several forms of heating and see whether or not they provided the kind of solutions that we all wanted, as in nice warm houses, but at a on our, 
it was always happening at a cost level which was just really not sustainable. And despite the fact that there's running relatively large amounts so far of RHI um, uptake, it's been very much confined to a small number of areas and in particular only to biomass. And I think that's probably not been seen as a solution that at scale we will want to implement for the 27 million households across the UK. So, 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 so therefore, we were kind of like, it was a sensible start. We realized that we were doing it wrong. We've now stopped having really very much in terms of incentivization for heating. Um, but we desperately need to find new mechanisms for investigating ways of reducing the overall cost of whichever technology we should apply. And I think that's the big problem. And maybe James will talk about it a bit more in a second. But it's thinking really about very different potential solutions. So is it hydrogen to every household? Is it heat pumps in every household? Is it some other solution? Where does insulation play? What's the trade-off between them? And what's the speed at which we can do these things? So there's physical difficulties with the, just the sheer number of people who are capable of installing a heat pump. Currently, they're just not nearly enough trained. People like Octopus are obviously going to change that, but there's still very few people who are currently qualified to have a heat pump. Equally, you keep coming back to cost. If we don't do something that actually regulates uh, against gas boilers, gas boilers will continue to be installed for a very long time and until we get to the point where essentially they become stranded if there's no gas. So, so, so I think it's that, that mixture really of there's no breakthrough for a new technology. I think we know what the technologies are. It's just the way in which they're applied um, is probably the, 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 the key um, to, to, to reducing the cost, which then would be the key to unlocking mass deployment. So a bit of a mixture then. So cost is clearly the most important factor. We need to reduce that maybe coupled with some more policy or backing from government and also a need for training. James, what's your perspective on that? Do you agree with that approach? Yes, I, I, I clearly do agree with with that. I mean, just to uh, elaborate on on some bits of that, maybe we'll come on to talk about the greenhouses in a minute, but... but um, uh, We've seen through through our renewable heat investments so far uh, that with some really good engineering and some creative thinking by um, very skilled people, in some areas you can you can find ways to match you know waste heat virtually free um, at source with a, a, a user uh, and potentially a network, and, and that there are ways of. Uh, driving the costs down um, but really what we've seen across not just renewables but obviously other industries most notably semiconductors is its scale that that drives cost reduction and and learning curve effects uh, Moore's law call it what you like um, but that they're all basically the same mechanism and um, so it is a difficult challenge. You know, we're installing 35,000 heat pumps a year at the moment. The government has an ambition to be installing 600,000 a year by 2030. Uh, I mean, that's a 20x scale up in nine years. And even then, you know, on the scale of what we've done in wind and solar, you know, UK heating is is not a, a kind of um, a, a multi terawatt market. Um, and so... Um, it, it is a challenge. It's it's going to take time, and it's going to take a kind of whole sector effort. So, are there any lessons though we could learn from outside the UK? Are there any jurisdictions then that have done this well that the UK government should be looking to, or investors should be looking to? So, so, um, so, so it's obvious, isn't it, that if you look at heat pump sales um, around Europe, 
they tend to significantly be in the Nordic countries. Obviously, countries which have um, one significant heat loads for a long period, and second, countries which have well understood the need for insulation, given the alternative. And so, we are starting in rather a different place with a relatively uninsulated. Um, building stock and also relatively smaller number of heating days a year and therefore whilst we could say you know look at what's happened in Scandinavia um, I think there would also need to very substantially weight those differences as to whether or not the solution that they've come up with is the right one for us. I guess we've also seen in countries like um, Denmark significant use of um, residues and whether it be agricultural or um, uh, environmental residues or waste residues from households etc to provide district heating or a hot water um, solutions now those may work in those specific countries but i suspect that they're unlikely to be the answer or the sole answer to the problem that we're facing and i think that probably is the, the key issue which is there's probably multiple solutions albeit there's also probably some things we should start to think about ruling out anything to add on that james Yes, just to elaborate a bit, I, I think there's clearly a very wide type of uh, building type and uh, you know density of, of living, of populations, etc., e- even within the UK, let alone, as, as Richard was sort of saying, com- compared to, to other countries. And I think it's unlikely there'll be one winning technology for decarbonising heat from you know, rural shire counties to the highlands of Scotland to, uh, you know, East London to, you know, Devon and Cornwall. Um, I, I think that there are going to be different, uh, there are going to be different optimal solutions, but I think they're probably going to cluster around some version of heat pumps or uh, hydrogen or some other low carbon gas. Maybe to jump in, I mean, I think that then heads to another sort of theme, I think, which is is localization. So, so, so we very much um, run renewables top down. So there's a national subsidy. You can apply for it wherever you are. Um, the electrons that you make wherever you are, you can export onto a grid that can deliver them to wherever they're needed. Now, obviously, we've taken some efforts to decide whether Scotland's in the wrong place or London's in the wrong place with grid charging recently. But in heat it's very different as in it needs to be produced locally and used locally and and as james said the the individual factors are going to be very very different so i guess the question then is is that, okay how do you get the involvement of the the localization and you obviously have fantastic organizations call out for polly billington and uk 100 for instance uh, where she's bringing together councils to share learning to take this forward but i think it's also important that the government recognizes that probably councils don't have the resources to do this on their own and therefore things like the national infrastructure bank in terms of sharing of learning and uh, rather than just financing may be an important thing but also government running tests and almost on a sort of kind of either a command basis you know we've selected Ipswich for this test or asking people to come forward with tests or proposals probably better that that that, that they would like to run and then basically allowing some of those to develop and to see what we learn from uh, you know quite large tests at scale and I think that's really the issue that we're facing at the moment is is that we have a very small amount of data. We we believe that we can install more air source heat pumps and that we can reduce the price of installation from whatever it is today, several 
probably you know approaching 10 20,000 down to below 5,000 we don't yet know we can do it and then what we don't also know is whether or not if we do that at huge scale what the effect will be on the system the electricity system to enable it to deliver when electrons to power the heat pumps at times when it's cold and um and 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 dark and not windy so although we don't know all of that uh clearly just to, to give a, a shout out to it to another group we uh, have a huge amount of uh time respect for the the aurora um energy team uh we participated in a multi-client study that they ran on trying to model out some of these heat decarbonization pathways and they compared air source heat pumps ground source heat pumps the sort of networked heat pumps um uh hydrogen uh high temperature heat networks which apologies i didn't mention earlier some of those definitely have a place more, more a la scandinavia um in some parts of and regions of, of the uk particularly dense urban um uh, and they tried to model those out based on clearly our current understandings of what the cost trajectories might be quite wide uncertainties on that but i think notwithstanding the 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 uncertainties a few messages were pretty clear. Firstly, and this is right back to the top where Richard started, gas wins. Unless you are going to ban gas boilers or you're going to tax carbon emissions at a level that people probably think today is socially um, unacceptable, uh, then the lowest economic cost answer will always be to install another gas boiler and to to burn methane in it um and the the other sort of major conclusion of the work is sort of what i was saying earlier that there are real benefits to um ambient temperature heat networks which are really substantially cheaper to build and operate because they have warm water you know 12 degrees c not not hot water 80 degrees c um, being piped around and, and then that water used as a source to, to heat you know locally to buildings offices um, you know, shopping centers etc and i think the key thing for that is there's plenty of relatively low grade waste heat source sources to which you could connect such ambient temperature networks and it's possible to you know imagine that that being a very strong source of energy required rather than having to use the current mechanism of doing it which is to drill a borehole or to bury a lot of pipe in a field outside a, a domestic dwelling i think if you can access these other sources um relatively easily and with relative constancy and possibly with multiple sources in a ring type of proposal you could very quickly see that you'd have energy security at a relatively low cost from this effectively waste heat that you're otherwise going to be able to utilise. Right. Well, I'm certainly, that was really interesting. I'm certainly convinced there's a need um, and there's clearly an opportunity. It, it sounds to me, though, that there are still quite a lot of uncertainties over the appropriate technology, over costs, over policies, over government's involvement. So given that, how, how can these heat projects be interesting to investors at Greencoat? Well, I, I think, first of all, they, they need to happen. We need to have some um, to, 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 to invest in. And they need to effectively reflect the same kind of characteristics as we see in renewables and are the kind of clients that we have who are largely British pension funds um, seeking long-duration assets with often inflation exposure, low risk, low volatility. 
And so having something that is a, in a high returning um, project that might yield you a massive windfall profit and or might lose you all your money is probably the wrong way to attract um, pension fund money at relatively low cost. So, so, so we need a bit of policy, I think, to come in beside these, I guess, trials, these large scale trials, which seeks to replicate within the bounds of um, uh, tram lines, I guess, of uh, risk expectations of this type of capital. We need to, to effectively set those kind of projects up to deliver at scale that is interesting to the kind of investors that we would represent. And, and I guess that that's sort of unlikely to be in the sort of five to 10 million, because the truth is that the cost and effort of getting that to happen is out of all proportion to the reward that was likely to be gained by the investor, um, our client. So, so, so that I'd say we need some projects and they need to be of a scale where it's interesting and they need to be of a sort of return um, characteristics that are in the secure income stroke matching, maybe a little bit higher initially because there will be unknowns and uncertainties. But the, 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 I think it's not difficult to see what kind of projects those would be and what kind of characteristics would be needed. And it's not that difficult to think about the kind of policy that you'd need to make that happen. Currently, it seems to us that policy is really focused on um, really testing whether or not the cost of an air source heat pump can get to the 5,000. And that's sort of where government policy is in that there is currently no, um, now we don't have an RHI, there's no long duration sort of periodic cash flow payments for expending capital type of mechanism. Now that could move in to regulated networks, sort of RAB-based models for heating in the future, or it could remain more on RHIs, but perhaps tendered for bid it bid for in the same way that cfds are bid for to basically make sure that the best projects happen at the lowest cost for people and then obviously you'd need to have grandfathering to make sure that people felt that they would continue to get um the the, the return that they were expecting over the life of the the asset thanks richard so um that was a really good discussion about sort of the opportunities out there and the need I thought maybe, James, we could get a little bit more specific now and actually turn to a green heating horticulture project where, you know, your investors have invested. Um, and I understand it's one of the world's smartest and greenest greenhouse projects. So can you tell the listeners a little bit more about this project and why you invested in it? Sure. Yeah, we're, we're really quite quite proud of the role we've played among lots of others and partners in in. Uh, uh, helping to pull these projects together and our, our investors are acquiring them and funding them. Um, so uh, what the projects do is they take waste heat um, from, in the case of the first two, um, wastewater treatment plants, sewage works. So uh, uh, they extract heat from that outflow uh, and they pipe the resulting warm water two kilometres across the field to an energy centre for a glasshouse. Uh, and they then uh, use heat pumps to raise uh, the temperature of a water loop to sort of 50 degrees C ish, which provides the the, the, the base load uh, heat for, for the glasshouse, you know, 90 odd percent of the heat needs of the glasshouse over the year. Um, in terms of the heat source, it's a sewage work. So it operates 24 7, 365. Its output is extremely predictable. There are decades of data, all the stuff that infrastructure funds love. Uh, and what it produces is is an effluent, final effluent going into the river that's four or five degrees above river temperature all year round. 
uh, and that's for two reasons a the biological action of the um, sewage treatment process uh, uh, preparing the water to be discharged that's exothermic and heats the water up uh, and secondly just the friction from all the pumps um, uh, and pipe work that the, the water's being piped uh, pumped through through the sewage works so that's a really um, uh, substantial in quantity heat source but pretty low temperature and the real uh, kind of um, uh, insight in the project and, and full credit to the Oasthouse Ventures team for kind of unlocking this uh, was that, that that neatly matched the energy demands of, of a glasshouse. Um, so we've also financed uh, the construction of these large glasshouses uh, for growers to go in and grow tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and so on for UK retailers. And there's an interesting sort of horticulture side to, to, to the investment too, albeit we're, we're not growing experts and we're not growing um, the, the plants directly, the, the, the growers are. Um, but um, uh, glasshouses are phenomenally land and water efficient. You get about 10 times the produce per metre squared uh, of field grown crop with one tenth the water. Um, so very efficient in that respect. However, they do need quite a lot of energy because the glasshouse needs to be kept warm you know, all the way through the growing season. It's basically an 11-month growing season. Uh, and clearly, it's a glasshouse. It's not a well-insulated building. Um, so almost every glasshouse out there uses gas to heat uh, the, 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 um, the crop. Our um, renewable heat uh, source effectively reduces the carbon footprint of a tomato by 75%. Now, if you've done any work in uh, kind of agriculture, reducing carbon footprints by, you know, five and 10% is often a, a really big challenge. Um, uh, so to, to make a, a dent like that in, in a, a high volume crop like tomatoes or cucumbers is is really a, a massive step. Really interesting. So it is the are the greenhouses like producing are the uh, yep. the tomatoes yeah. that. So I know you're not the grower. Have you tasted them? Do they taste good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've certainly <laughs> tasted them. I, uh, I I said to uh, the the FD of the grower on my first visit, can I take a pepper? He said certainly, twenty six p each. <laughs> Oh, you know, it's a good investment. You can rely on that. Uh, great. So, look, you, you touched upon it, the agriculture. What a massive issue that is for decarbonisation, uh, you know, of all economies, many economies. What sort of, um, how important is horticulture, you know, in the midst of agriculture? Because we often just hear about, you know, cows and methane and agriculture. But what, what how important do you think it is that we decarbonise horticulture? So, clearly, it's it's vital. Um so the biggest part, agriculture for context is about 9% of UK emissions. It's higher in some countries, approaching 30% in Ireland. Um, but the biggest part of, biggest parts of the carbon emissions in agriculture are from livestock, um, cows and, and uh, lamb, sheep, um, pigs, chickens, um, uh, and also for, from uh, land use and, and fertilizer and so on and so forth. Um, so horticulture um, plays a role in in uh, reducing carbon emissions versus some field crops but you now you get into the slightly odd way we do carbon accounting here so um, most horticultural product is imported in the UK the UK imports 90% of its tomatoes so 
our investment in growing British production is actually displacing a mixture of uh, Dutch and Spanish horticulturally grown produce. But from a carbon accounting point of view, we're actually onshoring those emissions. I know Greta Thunberg and others have uh, uh, have pointed out the slight ridiculousness of that accounting treatment, but nevertheless, that that is how it that that is how it's done. But you know. Mother Nature doesn't really care care where the CO two molecule came from. Uh, clearly, we we are making quite a big um, uh, hit in 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 taking that carbon out. Really interesting. Thank you. And um, Richard, I am absolutely sure you will have a view on this given um, your livestock. So, what's your view on this? I'm now taken to saying that they are my wife's um, cattle rather than <laughs> my cattle uh, on the basis that the, A, it's true, and she is competent and I'm incompetent when it comes to cattle. Um, she's a so-called regenerative farmer, so she's of the view that, yes, um, it's absolutely obvious that ruminants emit methane. Um, and so when you get beef production, you are going to get methane, and it's not a free hit, and it's not just that the carbon in from the grass is the carbon out in the beef or um co2 the methane is very destructive and i think so she has a, an approach to um, farming which is essentially regenerative which is to really increase the content of the soil carbon and i guess that's probably one of the the big steps um that i imagine one will seek going forward if you think that there's currently six billion tons a year roughly of uh, oil and gas extracted and i think a lot of people would suggest that we need perhaps as many as 15 billion tons of co2 sequestered um, that's not going to happen through a few cc us demonstration projects and therefore it's going to have to happen through nature-based solutions so 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 my feeling is is that we're going to need to um, find a way of essentially producing what we want to produce whether it be uh, a more uh, a lower meat content diet and or to the extent that we do use um, uh, or have meat in our diet um, then that it's done with the maximum effort to basically increase the level of soil carbon. Soil carbon, by the way, in farming is not quite non-existent, but it's pretty low in current arable practices around the UK. And um, whereas if you actually get the, um, the what you're feeding your cattle or your livestock on to, to, to root well, you can get more carbon in than you can in a rainforest hectare for hectare. So it's pretty pretty spectacular potential gains. Now, that's obviously from an apologist who likes eating beef that his wife produces. And so I'm uh, going to continue to use that argument until the tomatoes grown by us or otherwise appear in my direction. So, James, turning it back to the greenhouse project that we were discussing, is there any lessons that you've learned from that that could be applied elsewhere? Yes, we think so. Uh, and, I, and I mentioned the Aurora work earlier, um, but we have learnt through these projects that uh, it really is very significantly cheaper to pipe warm water around. I mean, essentially, if if there's a leak, you have a water problem, not a kind of scalding uh, problem uh, that you would have with 80 degree uh, water. Uh, and it, it it does cost some money, clearly, to uh, uh, raise the temperature of that. Uh, that water again to, to something that could heat a, a building or a home or a glass house or, or, or whatever. Uh, and we do have a challenge in getting the, the costs of heat pumps down, but we're quite early on the learning curve uh, for, for doing that. Um, what the, the modelling is showing is the benefit of the significantly improved performance that you get. And just to quantify that, I think an air source heat pump might average maybe a coefficient of performance of 3.2. So that means 3.2 uh, 
um, megawatt hours of heat out for one megawatt electric of electricity in uh, our water source heat pumps with 12 degree warm water have a coefficient of performance of somewhere between 4.2 and 4.5 uh, so that that's quite meaningful um, and as I mentioned what the Aurora study has shown is for really quite a v wide variety of building types and population densities and kind of uh, uh, residential uh, housing circumstances they can actually be the lowest cost uh, solution to, to, to allowing um, heat decarbonisation, cheaper than air source heat pumps and, and cheaper than hydrogen. So maybe just jumping in on that, um, one of the things that I think is really important is, is that you need to create... Um, the opportunity for people to make investments, learn. Um, it's a technology thing. It's also a cost down, cost for the cost of capital of projects. So we have not only built the first two greenhouses James mentioned using the sewage treatment works at Barry St. Edmunds in Norwich, we're now also building an even larger greenhouse up towards Ely. And that is at a materially lower RHI payment than the first two projects. And I guess our idea is, is that if you let the um, these projects continue, you would probably get to enough tomato greenhouses to supply the relevant number of tomatoes. But what you will actually then get is many more projects. So, for instance, people like Thames Water, Seven Trent, are starting to think about whether or not they have the future in their sewage treatment works and they shouldn't be working with others to deliver the sort of heat sources, etc. Innovation through these kind of projects is exactly what we need. We can't continue to think, or we know we don't have the answers yet to decarbonisation of heating. And we, 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 you need the government to have the sort of backdrop to allow the, the, really the market to thrive and ingenuity to win. And, and we're not really seeing that at the moment. And the reason that we don't see that is the point that James made at the beginning, which is gas wins pretty much all the time. The dice are just too loaded in its favour. And, and you, you, the, therefore intervention is required. Really exciting projects. I, I hope we see a lot more of them. Um, but before we move on, any other new technologies, anything interesting you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, so I think um, we are um, like several others, but we, we are quite excited about some of the progress being made in, in green hydrogen uh, and the progress that uh, that's allowed people to think about in terms of the hard to decarbonize sectors, uh, the likes of my old industry, the steel industry, or, 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 or cement, uh, or shipping and fertilizer. Um, I think when the goal was to decarbonize by 80% by 2050, you could always put those in, mm, it's a bit difficult sort of bucket. Um, but with the need to get to net zero, it's really shoved the need for solutions here on the table. And um, uh, we think hydrogen is very exciting. It, it, you can uh, you know, not just use it as an energy vector, but also a, a, a reducing agent um, in, for example, the steel making process. It really is producible at scale uh, from, uh, you know, the um, uh, uh, the wind and solar uh, that, that we know now, as Richard was saying earlier, that we can build at, uh, at relatively cost competitive rates. Um, there are some challenges around uh, transporting it and distributing it. There are some um, important safety uh, um, concerns to address and, and get right, but but they all look, feel and sound like solvable problems. So we think that's got tremendous potential 
in some tricky areas. We actually probably lean a little bit more towards electrification of heating, although hydrogen may well play a role in some parts of the UK where, uh, you know, you have uh, physical proximity to um, uh, low cost sources of hydrogen and or local uh, gas distribution networks that have potentially already had the investment to be hydrogen ready. Yeah, it's certainly a really interesting um, area, hydrogen, and the thought of hydrogen storage as well and your offshore wind assets. There's um, huge potential for hydrogen, as you've um, highlighted. We could, do a whole, we could do a whole second podcast on hydrogen. Yeah, we, we could indeed. Um, and we've already got one podcast on hydrogen with a focus from um, Peter Deneff in Angers. He, he looked at the hydrogen opportunities over in Asia Pac and then the crossover with Latin America. And we're also going to be doing a podcast shortly um, in the US with my US partner who's been working on some super interesting uh, hydrogen projects. Okay, so James, looking forward, we all of um, all of our guests on the podcast, we like to um, ask them to do a bit of crystal ball gazing. Um, so firstly, what do you think the biggest changes you expect to see in the energy sector by 2030? So uh, I'm not going to duck the question, but I'm going to evolve it if I may. Um, I think actually most of the 2020s is just about doing. We need to decarbonize power in the 2020s. We need to build more wind, solar, nuclear, uh, maybe some energy from waste and, and, and bioenergy, but we really just need to do it uh, because that's a necessary precondition for decarbonizing almost anything else. No use, not, not as much use having an electric vehicle if the coal is uh if the, the the power is supplied from coal or gas um so so i think um uh most of the 2020s doing it building it funding it getting it uh deployed i think we will make progress decarbonizing heat in the 2020s particularly in the second half um if you look at I think we've all learned a lot about exponential curves, haven't we, in the last 18 months? Um, but if you look at the uh, heat deployment target of getting to 600,000 a year by 2030, it's not a straight line. Um, we will have to uh, you know, train people. Uh, we will have to get costs down. We'll have to convert consumers. I mean, we haven't spoken so much about the fact that heat does involve going into the home. There's a, a hearts and minds side to heat much more than kind of where your power comes from out of the plug. People don't in inverted commas care so much but they do care about the engineer coming into their home uh, and the kit the equipment that they're going to install um so uh i think we'll learn a huge amount and we'll deploy a bit um decarbonizing heat in the 2020s but by 2030 most heat in the uk will still be gas and richard what's your view on that if you push that out to 2050 what do you expect to see beyond 2030 Normally, I say apply a large discount rate and you then don't mind to those questions. Um, but let's just um, uh, answer more seriously. I, I, I have no reason to doubt what James says. I mean, I'm guessing most people are seeing a doubling of electricity, say, in this country, effectively using that electricity produced cleanly to decarbonize first electric vehicles and then later heating. And, um, and as I said, I think that quite how that heating is done, whether it's heat pumps, gas um, air or ground source and or whether it's um su su some limited um other types of heating i as i said earlier i didn't think hydrogen to the home was likely to be a winner um i, I think that's probably where we're going to be going 
in heating. So, so I'd probably put my money on electric. Well, not probably. I would put my money on electrification of heating. I, I think also, though, that it needs to come with the appropriate social policies, particularly around insulation. And I think also so far that we've kind of had a, you know, we've waited a long time for the white paper. We've now got the white paper. We've now then had COP. Civil servants have done an amazing job of getting us to where we are. We're now looking forward to some policy to get these experiments working to really kick us off, to then allow us to start to make the decisions as to what to head for for 2050. Clearly, it's decarbonization. We just don't know the route, but we desperately need the data the information rather than the prejudices and rather than the um the sort of the the um the, the, the gas networks lobbying for gas networks to continue to exist just in a different format it seems to me obvious that you know there are vested interests um, at work here and that we need to also not let those blow us off course by coming up with too many questions and problems we just need to start do some things and learn from what we're doing that will then tell us where we're going to be Thanks, Richard. So can I ask you, are you hopeful for the future? Oh, massively, yes. Um, I, I think we have all of the capabilities now that we have low-cost electrons to really do whatever we want. And I totally believe that the sort of the ingenuity of teams that come to novel applications, to the new ideas, to the sort of to develop, for instance, the greenhouse concept, those kind of people will then develop new solutions that basically solve the problems that we create for ourselves partly um, by basically moving to low carbon but clearly those problems are small compared with the larger problem we're seeking to solve on the climate change so so, so i'm massively confident uh, i don't think there's anything stopping us i'm confident the money is there as well which i'm perhaps a little more qualified to talk about completely sure that people um you know whether it be individuals um through their um defined contribution schemes whether it be um, institutions defined benefit insurers whoever large pots of money want to invest in these kind of assets and we just need to provide them and the mechanisms for them to exist so in short yes (laughs) (laughs) without a doubt yes james what about you um yes i i i I am i agree with everything richard said i i think uh, on the step back up on the macro climate piece, I, I personally feel it's very challenging to keep within the kind of two degree um, uh, envelope. I think if you just look at the maths of how quick the decarbonisation has got to be, it's pretty hard um, globally. Uh, that said, uh, I'm probably more hopeful than I was five, six, seven years ago because of the tremendous progress that's been made decarbonizing um, power cheaply and getting the cost down to a level that society feels it can afford and competitive with alternatives, uh, with electric vehicles really looking like they're going to win the war in terms of light passenger transport, uh, 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 with, with heat pumps and their contribution to, to heating and, and with hydrogen and the potential for uh, tackling the really, really tough sectors like steel, cement, shipping, that really modern society can't function without, but but you know, um, ten years ago it was not clear how how those could ever be uh, decarbonized at a at a sensible cost. Um, so I'm more hopeful than I was because the cost uh, allows things politically that that uh, really seemed intractable before. But I'm a little bit pessimistic just in terms of the maths uh, at a at a macro scale. It, it, it's um, a level and pace and scale of activity that I think not very many people 
understand and and not very many people are really really up for james of course has a physics degree and therefore understands the mass whereas i have a geology degree and therefore understand the long term so an emphatically an emphatically hopeful and a relative hopefulness <laughs> thank you look um thank you both for your time i really enjoyed that debate so the energy transitions often portrayed in very simplistic terms. The focus is usually on how we make electricity greener with other sectors left largely untouched. But as you've heard today, this really isn't good enough. We need to go far beyond that. Heating should be high on the agendas of our policymakers and success will depend on winning over homeowners and business owners. It's clear from the discussions today, it won't be easy. Changing gas-warmed homes over to heat pumps or even hydrogen is going to bring major technical and financial challenges, as we've heard today. Finally, it has to be done fairly. The energy transition has to be a just transition. But these challenges must be overcome, and with the right technology and the right policies, it's only with these that we can convince customers and industry to change. That just leaves me to saying thanks for listening. Please catch us next time when we'll be discussing how can miners support a just transition. Please subscribe to the series at dlapiper.com forward slash ENR or via your usual podcast platform. Mm -hmm.